installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Nicole O'Byrne, and I'm a legal historian at the Faculty of Law, University of New Brunswick, which is located on the unceded and unsurrendered land of the Wolastiquic. Today, I'll be talking to Ravi Malhotra about two books he's co-authored with Benjamin Isaac, Able to Lead, Disablement, Radicalism, and the Political Life of E.T. Kingsley, published by UBC Press in 2021, and Class Warrior, the selected works of E.T. Kingsley, published by Athabasca University Press in 2022. Ravi Melhultra is a professor at the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law. He has several post-secondary degrees, including an LLM from Harvard and an SJD from the University of Toronto. An interdisciplinary scholar, his main research interests are labor and employment law, human rights, globalization, and disability rights. He has worked as a researcher for the disability rights organization REACH, where he contributed to reports about the barriers faced by law students with disabilities. Ravi is a member of the Human Rights Committee of the Council of Canadians with Disabilities, and he is an adjunct professor of critical disability studies at York University. I first met Ravi at a Canadian Association of Law Teachers conference that we held here at the University of New Brunswick in 2012. Since then, I've been a great admirer of his work and his tireless advocacy on behalf of people with disabilities. Ravi, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your books about E.T. Kingsley. Thank you so much for having me. Kingsley was a leading socialist writer, thinker, and sought-after speaker in the United States and Canada in the late 19th and early 20th century. However, his contributions have been mostly forgotten. Can you tell us about Kingsley's career and why you think he's important? I first came across a reference to Kingsley in a book by the famous Canadian uh, historian Ian Mackay. He has a book called Reasoning Otherwise that's a magisterial history of the Canadian left. And as somebody who's a disability, uh, and in the past, as you say, I've done disability activism and I've worked with the Council of Canadians with Disabilities uh, in the past, I, as an advocate, was interested in disability history and disabled people that played a role. So I looked into this, and Kingsley has mostly been forgotten. And the more I learned about him, the more I found his life was remarkable. And he's a man that ran for the legislature, the House of Representatives in the United States, and ran for the House of Commons. While he was never elected to office, he had a remarkable career. And although he was not a disability advocate, he was a person with a disability. So when I found this, I said, my goodness, I really need to learn more about this. And so I looked into the area and I came across a historian, Ben Isaac, who's been my collaborator for a decade. We came out with three books uh, out of this one shirt grant, Disabling Barriers, Able to Lead, and most recently, Class Warrior. The first two from uh, uh, the University of British Columbia Press and the last from Athabasca University Press. And 
I just thought it would be something that as a legal scholar uh, and Ben Isaac being a historian together, we could collaborate and see the contribution because Kingsley and his Socialist Party of Canada had a prominent role in British Columbia politics. And although it's mostly forgotten today, the organization he worked with previously, the Socialist Labour Party, prior to the era of Eugene Debs, the SLP was the largest radical formation in the United States in the 1890s. And the more I learned about him, the more I was convinced that it was something that we ought to do. And, and I think that Kingsley is important because he was raising interesting questions as a disabled person. He wasn't necessarily a disability advocate. That's not what he did. But he was a very prominent voice in British Columbia. He was a prominent voice before that in California. And I thought, and Ben and I understood, that it was important to get uh, information, collect his biography, and, and that's what we did. We spent a decade putting out these three books uh, that, you know, touch on Kingsley in different ways. And, uh, but I, I think it's the message that he contributed. He was passionate about his beliefs, and that's something that's not common in the modern world. And he had a very unique speaking style, a very unique writing style. Uh, so in our most recent work, we've collected his writings, his speeches, as well as his articles. But so it's simply the fact that it was so unusual and his uncompromising vision was so unusual. I, th I think that's a quick way of saying uh, why we think it's important. Yeah, I think your perspective brings something really unique to these projects. And your co-author, Ben Isaac, he's a lawyer, a historian, and a politician. And so I'd like to know a little bit more about how you and your co-author envisioned this project from the outset and how it evolved. And you've said it's evolved not only from one book, but to two to three. And I'd like to learn a little bit more about that progression. So I did not know Ben before this project started. I sought him out on the internet but we immediately clicked, and I bring up legal expertise. Ben is a lawyer uh, today, uh, but he's also a historian, and I don't necessarily have the archival skills. And just as importantly, Ben is based in British Columbia. I live in Ottawa, so that you know Canada is a big country, and Kingsley lived uh, in his entire Canadian period, which is the last, I would say, 27 or so roughly years of his life, was entirely in British Columbia, first in Nanaimo and then in Vancouver. Uh, in terms of how it evolved, we wanted to do an anthology first just because we thought it would be interesting to do a book that collected information about disability history. So that book, uh, which is from UBC Press, Disabling Barriers, Social Movements, Disability history and the law doesn't talk directly about Kingsley. You know, we, we, we're very proud of it. It has contributions from people in a variety of disciplines. Some of them are in history, some of them are in law, uh, and some of them are in neither. They're, you know, some of them are literature scholars. So we have Anne Finger, who's a very prominent literature scholar, very prominent disability rights advocate and feminist in the United States. We have disability studies scholars like Jay Dolmage, but we also have legal scholars as well. So, I mean, we have Eric Tucker, uh, who's at Osgoode Hall Law School, and uh, 
others that come from a legal background. So it's, it's a, and the collection is very wide ranging. Uh, we were delayed for many reasons, including COVID-19, but we spent years collecting the biography. And that is sort of the, the centerpiece of this project that's able to lead disablement radicalism in the political life of E.T. Kingsley. And that's a, a biography of Kingsley. And that's what we set out to do in the shirt grant. Uh, and at the outset, and I'll say more about this, I'm sure, later in the interview, I didn't even know that Kingsley necessarily engaged in litigation, uh, which he did. I guessed that he was he was an injured brakeman. Maybe he engaged in litigation. And yet I was still able to get uh, a shirt grant to fund this. And so, so I'm quite proud that my hunch or our hunch was correct and that we were able, although we never got the outcome, we were able to prove that Kingsley sued for some 80,000 uh, American dollars in, uh, in 1890, which today, if you do the inflation calculator, that, that's an astronomical sum in the millions if, if, you, you, know, if you do the calculation. Uh, and then, and here, full credit, 100% uh, lies with Ben Isaac, is he came up with this idea of let's have a third book. I was saying, you know, we could just do an appendix and have, give readers a flavor of Kingsley's writings and in able to lead. Ben said, no, no, let's do a separate project. We did that with uh, Athabasca University Press, and that's Class Warrior, the selected works of E.T. Kingsley, which is a collection of Kingsley's writings and his articles and his speeches. And he, he has a very dramatic way of uh, speaking. Or, you know, uh, if, if you were to read any of this, uh, you would see, and if you want, I can do that. But, you know, it's, uh, it's dramatic. He speaks in a very uncompromising, very confrontational style. You know, one of the uh, uh, slogans of the party he led in British Columbia was no compromise, no political trading. This isn't, uh, you know, your typical Jack Lee social democracy. This, this is a, a radical social formation. And, and the language they used, Kingsley used, and, and his comrades around him, we're very much in this old uh, class-centered, uh, dogmatic way of speaking. And so we thought it merited a third book, and that's Class Warrior. But thanks to the generosity of the open access policy and at the Basque University Press, anyone in the world can just go to their website and read the entire book online for free. Well, that's great to know. Kingsley left very few personal papers and very little is known about his personal life. However, you contextualize his life and political activism in very insightful ways. What were some of the themes that emerged from your research and what ideas motivated Kingsley? So the centerpiece of our research is really about the relationship between disability and radicalism. And you're, you're not wrong. There's a paucity of correspondence. There's a little bit with the MLA Hawthorne that exists at the Simon Fraser Archive, I believe. Uh, so there's a little bit of correspondence, but he was a very private man and never spoke publicly about his disability. So we had to infer all this. But if you trace his biography, it seems pretty clear that there's a relationship. He started off as a farmer and his life traces the sort of slogan, go West, young man, and that he constantly is moving further West as his life progresses, he's born in New York State. You know, he gets married in the Midwest. Uh, he has children, uh, but leaves farming. And I think 
we can deduce, can't prove, that, that it seems to be because of economic dislocation, economic crisis. He goes into the brakeman field, uh, which is a very dangerous railway job. Being a brakeman, it's extremely difficult uh, for Canadians in the 21st century to conceive. And if you read the book, which I encourage your listeners to do, you'll get a sense of it. You know, you're talking about enormous number of accidents weekly. The railways want to maximize productivity, but they're not focused on safety. And so we, we spend a lot of time on that. But while we, can, we don't have a smoking gun that gives us absolute proof, but it seems very clear that his disablement is linked to his radicalism and that he's, he's, he becomes radical after his injury. His marriage falls apart in the Midwest. Uh, although it's interesting, we found a record of his brother-in-law who had been a state senator in Minnesota. So while, again, we can't prove it to historical standards, we can speculate that perhaps the influence of his brother-in-law prior to his divorce uh, influenced his decision to run for office. But his marriage falls apart. He, he ends up as a street speaker in pre-earthquake San Francisco. And so impoverished, quite clearly, it sounds like it appears as if his litigation is unsuccessful. And all the evidence that we found suggests that the rest of his life he lives struggling in poverty, you know, on the margins, I think shapes his skepticism of craft unions. And so first, the Delayanists, who are known as the impossibles, this radical tendency led by Daniel DeLion, the idea that unions are corrupt and working class people need to seize them back, it's very appealing. You can link that to Kingsley's identity. We speculate because he's someone who's outside the labor market. He's not able to continue in his trade. And so he becomes this newspaper editor uh, in British Columbia, uh, first a street speaker, uh, but then his, uh, he, once he breaks with the Delanists, he ends up uh, invited first to Nanaimo because of the, uh, his reputation as a speaker. And so I think that it's this link, even though we have very little primary data, we, we were able to trace his history and it seems as if his uh, perspectives were shaped by his disability. Yeah, well, it seems that when he became a W amputee after that accident on the job as a brakeman, that when he was convalescing, he read Karl Marx and, and was radicalized. And I, I found that particularly interesting. But early in his career, Kingsley was influenced by Daniel de Leon, who was a professor of international law at Columbia University and a prominent member of the American Socialist Labor Party in the late 19th century. What were some of the political ideas that were flowing around at that time? And how did Kingsley's thinking evolve after he left the United States and immigrated to British Columbia? Well, as I said, I think that Kingsley, although he does break with the lion eventually, I think he always retained this orthodoxy. And the Socialist Party of Canada had various groups in, uh, and it's predominantly a British Columbia organization, despite being called the Socialist Party of Canada. It was very uh, prominent prior to the Great War, now known as World War I, but I think it's mostly the orthodoxy. And what's interesting about it is, to, to address your question, is after he leaves, even though he says Delane, you know, he breaks with Delane, says that uh, Delane uh, is not what he believes anymore, he still retained a lot of the uncompromising 
ideology, and he takes that with him to British Columbia. It's not Eugene Debs' sort of reformist socialism, which is sort of work with the unions and sort of boring from within, that eventually becomes social democracy. And this, this is interesting. There is some ambiguity. Uh, and so after the Russian Revolution, this uh, becomes uh, complicated. But the main thing I could say is that it's uh, the orthodoxy that I think he retains. This book makes a significant contribution to critical disability studies. What is critical disability studies? And what does it bring to your study of E.T. Kingsley? So critical disability studies is simply the idea that you're going to examine critically how structural barriers impinge on people with disabilities, whether it's in employment, housing, transportation, you know. And so Kingsley is not someone, uh, as I said, that was a disability rights advocate, and he never directly addresses it. And that's, you know, that's something that's puzzling. But I think the, the mystery about this is quite clear, and I think it's because he ambulated with artificial limbs. And because he ambulated with limbs that were artificial, I think that his disability was invisible unless you actually knew him very well. And that, to me, draws a parallel with the American president, Franklin Roosevelt. You know, the politics are very different, but because this is a pre-television era, and in the case of Kingsley, you don't even really have radio. It's before the radio era. And so because it's so early, I think Kingsley was able to navigate his life where a lot of people don't necessarily recognize that he was himself a person with a disability, and yet it shaped so much of how he lived his life. So when you look at addresses we found where he lived, it seemed that he lived very close uh, to his newspaper editor's offices uh, in British Columbia. And that's not surprising because it's pretty clear. I don't think Kingsley had a vehicle. Hardly anybody did in this era. We found records of Kingsley's telephone number in Vancouver. It was three digits, right? So, you know, this was a different era. And so I think that it, it shows the way that he was, uh, barriers were imposed on him, and yet he was able to impose his will, his political ideas, uh, as this editor and the leading intellectual light of this radical organization that had significant influence through its uh, organ or newspaper, the Western Clarion, forgotten today, but widely read in Western Canada uh, before the Great War, you know, I think that is how his influence, I would say his intellectual influence uh, and how it was shaped, uh, I think critical disability studies allows us to understand that. Tort law and immigration law during the time period play a very important role in shaping Kingsley's destiny. Can you explain how the law at the time played an important role in Kingsley's life? You know, one of the questions we explore is, although we found no record of an outcome in his litigation uh, in tort, which, you know, uh, was simply an action against Northern Pacific Railway, he did sue them. And so we explored this. Uh, and so we looked at the doctrines at the time, and they were, surprise, surprise, very much in favor of protecting railroad interests uh, so they had rules like the fellow servant rule, you know, without getting too deep into obscure tort law doctrines, you know, they they were designed 
to protect the interests of the railway. And so the fellow servant rule says that, you know, uh, you can look at the fellow servants and that the employee is in a better position than the employer to know the quality of his co-worker. And so with the greatest respect, I would say that the fellow servant rule is, is very absurd from a modern perspective. But these, these uh, orthodox tort doctrines made it very difficult uh, to get recovery. And so it clearly shaped Kingsley's life because I think it is what meant that he uh, lived in poverty, but it also meant that he was a great leader. You know, I think it, it inspired him to mobilize uh, and rally against uh, capitalism. We also do examine, as you point out, immigration law. And so one of the funny things about this book is that although Kingsley is eventually naturalized, he just shows up in British Columbia, as far as we can tell. And for those people that are interested in race or whiteness theory, I think uh, that plays a role here. He moves to Nanaimo in 1902, and he eventually becomes naturalized. But he's running for office early on. And what's so interesting is that there doesn't seem to be any sort of immigration process at the beginning. It seems like years later, he corrected uh, his status when the security state started gearing up. But for years, nobody paid attention to this. And I think that speaks to the, uh, you know, sort of remoteness of British Columbia in these early days. And so, you know, we found population listings. Vancouver, to say nothing of Nanaimo, were, both of them were extremely small places, you know, prior to the Great War. And so, you know, uh, we later found uh, people in the Canadian military during the Great War actually issuing letters inquiring uh, whether or not Mr. Kingsley had been naturalized. I think Colonel Chambers, for those of your uh, listeners that follow uh, the history of the security state will probably know the name of Colonel Chambers. You know, I think he issued a letter uh, inquiring, is Mr. Kingsley naturalized? So, you know, you're a lawyer, I'm a lawyer. When, when you read a letter like that, that's a prelude to deportation, I would say. It's unclear why Kingsley was never deported. But what, once the uh, security state wraps up uh, in World War I, the Great War, uh, you can see these sort of factors uh, and so in the book, we explore tort law, we explore immigration law, and we also explore national security law. Uh, and I think Kingsley's life is affected by all of them. But the fact that he was a white man in a relatively remote area in British Columbia, at least at the beginning he arrived, he was a fishmonger originally. He was selling fish in Nanaimo while promoting socialism. I think they, did, they didn't really start to pay attention until after the Great War broke, up, broke out. And they never got around uh, to deporting him. And I think that's mostly uh, because of bureaucracy. Yeah, that's the period I'd like to talk to you about next is as a political leader, Kingsley played an important role in the free speech movement in British Columbia in the early decades of the 20th century. Can you tell us about his involvement? To answer that, we actually have to go back. We have to go back earlier. Kingsley was engaged in free speech fights in the 1890s in San Francisco. And so in our book, I think we have some illustrations, you know, where they'd have silent protests that would be broken up by the police and people around Kingsley would be charged, I think including Kingsley, uh, you know, on minor charges relating to demonstrations in the 1890s. But if you look at the historian, uh, the literature by historians, 
You won't see records of this, and most historians associate this with anarchists about 20 years later. I never claim, you know, or to make uh, originality claims, because there's always somebody who did it first. But there, quite honestly, there's very little literature on this radical formation in the 1890s. And when Kingsley comes to British Columbia, he continues with this pattern. And so in, uh, you know, uh, the book, uh, and in our research anyway, we, you know, we talk about free speech uh, in British Columbia, and there's definitely a double standard in how they did the state uh, regulated free speech uh, in in British Columbia. So the Salvation Army that was okay, uh, but radical organizations were suppressed. And there's some very colorful anecdotes. So we're very grateful to the deceased scholar Roz Johnson, who wrote one of the magisterial doctoral dissertations. And uh, Brian Palmer has quite correctly praised this doctoral dissertation by uh, the late Professor Johnson. And one of the anecdotes uh, in his doctoral dissertation, uh, and I believe, I think we allude to this, uh, but in any case, you can find it there, is that when they were suppressing free speech, activists in the SPC went out to the body of water known as English Bay, and they would sell the clarion, the radical socialist paper, from the boat because the municipal bylaw referred to streets. And so that's, for those of you that are interested in the law of dissent, or social mobilization, and I think there's many people like that doing that today, that's an early example of challenges to law, uh, the letter of the law, using highly innovative techniques. So I, I think it was interesting that Kingsley and his uh, colleagues, his comrades, were doing innovative work around free speech, both in San Francisco and also in uh, Vancouver. Well, due to his outspoken and socialist views, Kingsley was the subject of RCMP surveillance, what does Kingsley's experience with the state tell us about the history of state control over political expression in Canada? Well, it's interesting because I think there's a, there was a lot of repression at the time. And Kingsley uh, was not personally affected as much as other people, partly, I think, because at, at this point, he was getting older and older. He was born in 1856, so he would have turned 60 during the Great War. But it's true that many went to jail. At some point in the Great War, Kingsley is no longer a member of the SPC. He writes a pro-war editorial in the Clarion that's controversial. And so I think he personally was less affected. But I think the fact that all his life he was a radical inspired others uh, to mobilize around these issues, and certainly uh, during the war and in the aftermath, at the end of the war, uh, you'll see that there was a lot of repression. And I suppose, I suppose a way of answering that is that Kingsley mentored people, uh, and people uh, that were not in one faction or the other. So he definitely knew J.S. Woodsworth, and, and some of the people that he mentored went on to found the CCF, and others went on to found the Communist Party. Kingsley was very old at the time, and he joined uh, the Federal Labor Party, the FLP, but he uh, was not particularly active, I think, although he does run for parliament one last time in 1926. But, you know, I think the main thing that I can say is that he set an example for radicalism, and those followers of him uh, experienced repression, uh, and not just those, interestingly, not just those, 
who chose the path of the Communist Party. There was also repression uh, of people like J.S. Woodsworth, many and many others that went on in uh, the period of uh, the, the radical period, you know, around the Winnipeg General Strike uh, that founded social democracy as well. The state was uh, all-encompassing in uh, suppressing dissent in this period. What are some of the relevant political lessons we can take from learning about Kingsley's life? I think there's a few. One of them is that he is a man that did not compromise. Others, many left as early as uh, the first decade of the 20th century, left the SPC, the Socialist Party of Canada, uh, tried to do more reformist parliamentary uh, you know, engagement. Uh, I'm not saying one thing or the other is the right answer for contemporary times, but I think the fact that Kingsley was passionate, he stuck to his guns, if I could use that expression, he had beliefs. They weren't always necessarily the right beliefs. You know, I don't think he was very advanced on what used to be called the woman question, things like women's suffrage. I think he had an old-fashioned patriarchal position. But the fact, that's a lesson that, you know, we would not learn from Kingsley. But the fact on the central issues of class that he was so passionate about his belief, and notwithstanding his impairments, uh, you know, he's someone that traveled by train across Canada on speaking tours. I wouldn't want to do that in 2023, frankly. He was doing this, you know, in uh, the uh, early first decade of the 20th century. Uh, you know, when he was a, a double amputee, I think that would be a very exhausting trip. And if you go to the archives and you read the Clarion, you'll see his reports on giving speeches across the country. So I would say it's his passion and his political commitments. Ravi, thanks so much for talking to us about your book today. Thank you so much for having me. My guest today has been Ravi Milholtra. He's the co-author with Benjamin Isaac of two books about E.T. Kingsley, Able to Lead, Disablement, Radicalism, and the Political Life of E.T. Kingsley, published by UBC Press in 2021. Also, Class Warrior, The Selected Works of E.T. Kingsley, published by Athabasca University Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can learn more about the Champlain Society. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We appreciate likes and shares. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Nicole O'Byrne. This interview was recorded on March 14th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team.